welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read a portion in Luke 24 that was actually uh, after the resurrection day. And uh, the, uh, the text is Luke 24 verses 25 to 27. I believe only verse 27 is going to be on the screen, but I want to read the first two uh, that really complete that moment. Jesus had uh, appeared to the disciples once again in his resurrected presence in the upper room. And uh, he said this to them in verse 25 of Luke 24. Let us hear the word of God together. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. God's word is powerful. May it again break upon our hearts with powerful truth in Jesus' name. Amen. You can grab a chair. Thank you. Well, I I read that portion of scripture because it identifies uh, the dimension of the coming of Christ that I want to talk about today. We are in a Christmas series entitled, Do You See What I See? And it's, it's, a, it's a deeper look at some of the more profound realities of who Jesus was when he came. And last week we talked about Jesus arriving as the perfect one, the God-man. God be- becoming fully man and yet remaining fully God and journeying all the way to the cross to make a perfect sacrifice for us. He is the only perfect one and he came as the perfect one that Christmas morning. Today we're going to talk about the uh, Jesus that I've identified as the predicted one. And Jesus told us about himself in that portion in Luke in the same way. He had been predicted by the prophets, all the prophets, the scripture says. And, and so we're going to talk about that today. Christ is the only individual in human history whose identity birth and life were predicted centuries prior to his arrival on earth by the prophets. Well over a thousand years before Christ was born, they began their ministry and putting things into scriptural reality about the coming Messiah. He is is marked in history as the Christ, marked in history as the Messiah of Israel, marked in history as God's savior son for the world. He and he alone. Many people have come and gone claiming to be Messiah or claiming to know about a Messiah coming, but they have all come and gone. Christ, in his arrival, was the predicted one. We're going to see how it marked him out in history, and it will encourage and give fullness to your faith this Christmas, as it does for me every year when I ponder the prophecies. I've spoken about the prophecies regarding Jesus many times in my ministry, and I've spoken on uh, these prophecies with you before. 
I've done it because it affected my life. In fact, uh, when I was shown how God had fulfilled prophecies in the Old Testament, in history, recorded and confirmed by secular historians, that was a factor in how I came from skepticism to faith. When I saw that the Bible put it on the line and God put in print decades and even centuries before events happened and prophesied in the Old Testament that they would happen regarding nations and kingdoms and events and even people and kings, I couldn't deny that this was a supernatural book and therefore the author had to be real. More on that a little later. So it's always been uh, powerful in my life and the particular prophecies I'm going to go over with you today that mark out Jesus as the only possible Messiah are still changing lives. The prophecies I'm going to talk about today are right now in Israel being used by young evangelists in Israel, the nation of Israel, to open the eyes of Israeli Jews to the fact that according to these prophecies, only Yeshua of Nazareth, 2,000 years ago, born in Bethlehem, was the, the Messiah. And so did you know that many, many hundreds, if not thousands of Israeli Jews right now are coming to trust Christ as Messiah, partly because of the prophecies I'm going to tell you about today. It's amazing. So the story of Christ and his arrival, it's a, it's a story that has been put into the greatest hymns in our experience one of the great hymn writers in our times was Charles Wesley, who was an itinerant preacher, magnificent man of God, and he uh, wrote over a thousand hymns somehow uh, uh, during his life of preaching. He preached all over and throughout the American colonies and also in England, and uh, went to all of his preaching points on horseback, and he wrote his sermons and meditated on Christ on horseback, and he also wrote his hymns that way. The story goes that Hark the Herald Angels Sing, you guys are familiar with that one, that was written on horseback. Just think about it. You're complaining about being stuck in traffic and not being able to get things done. And, yeah. A thousand hymns. One of his most uh, beautiful strains is this, Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Born to set thy people free from our fears and sins. Release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation. Hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation. Joy of every longing heart. Focus on the first two lines. Come thou long expected Jesus. Born to set thy people free. There he focuses on the arrival of Christ. He is the long expected Jesus. And he was to Israel based on their Old Testament. The prophecies of Christ are quite profound. Now, before I get into the detail about the prophecies, just a word about prophecy. And I'm going to get into a couple things that it does for us in just a minute. But Fulfilled prophecies are kind of a daring step by God to take. Because what God did is in the Old Testament over uh, centuries of time, he put prophecies in place and then they were fulfilled so that historians could see that what God promised through the Old Testament prophets did actually happen in time and history. 
One author said this, fulfilled prophecies give clear attestation to the hand of God in human history and are some of the most important evidences for the historical reliability and truthfulness of the Old Testament. The Bible is the only religious document in existence that provides more than 2,000 prophecies that validate its historical claims. Many of these prophecies have yet to be fulfilled in future earthly history that deal with the nations and the times and the events of the future yet to come and Israel yet to come and the return of Christ yet to come. But many, many others have been fulfilled. You need to remember that. It validates the fact that the scripture was written by God. These fulfilled prophecies deal with Jesus Christ in his arrival, life, death, and resurrection. They deal with the rise of the nation of Israel. They also are prophecies that were about other nations like Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome and other cities like Tyre and Babylon, all before these nations rose and these cities were founded and the prophecies were made centuries before and fulfilled in history so that we can can see that God is the master of history. The prophecies even concern the lives and deeds of individual people before they ever arrived, like King Cyrus, among others in the Old Testament. Of course, some other religions make prophetic claims. However, in no other religion in the world has prophecy been fulfilled so completely and so accurately as that recorded in the Bible, end of quote. So when, when these things were shown to me when I was a skeptic and I was shown how the Bible had prophesied certain historical events and they were fulfilled in the history that I knew as a secularist. I had to conclude that this book is infallible and only an infallible God can write an infallible book. And so I began to turn my heart to consider that infallible God. And not too long after that, he swept into my heart with salvation. So prophecy attests to the greatness of God, the God of the Bible alone, and his mastery over all history. Now, when it comes to Jesus, it also attests to the fact that he is marked out by God in history as the Messiah. Now, there are 60 prophecies, approximately, about the life, the the birth, the arrival, the the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus in the Old Testament record. They find themselves mentioned in 300 different places in the Old Testament. Many of them are repeated. Many of these were written over a thousand years before Jesus arrived on the planet, and they were fulfilled. What I'm going to do this morning is just kind of go over the major prophecies that detail his uh, birth and the early years of his life to show you that they mark out Christ as the Messiah in history. No other human being could ever claim to be the one the Bible promised other than Jesus of Nazareth. And again, when I saw that, it strengthened my faith in my new Savior. So three things today. We're going to take a look very briefly at the perspective on prophecy you need to have when you read it. Secondly, we're going to take a look at these prophecies of the Messiah. There'll be about, there'll be 10 of them all together. And then uh, finally, how this panorama goes all the way to the cross. So first of all, let me just kind of nail in a couple things about the power and the, the, the perspective you need to have, have on the power of biblical prophecy. Um, Prophetic statements, easy to make, hard to fulfill, wouldn't you say? And in fact, humankind 
always likes to try and confidently predict the future. And man uh, often gets it hilariously wrong. Just Here's some examples of human prophecy uh, from uh, history. Uh, king George III, the, the oppressive king over the, uh, the American colonies whose oppression sparked a little thing called the American Revolution, said in 1773, quote, the American colonies have little stomach for revolution. Three years later, after the shot was heard around the world from Lexington Commons, he said something else. Uh-oh. <laughs> I mean, that was, that, that was it. How do you say uh-oh in British? Uh-oh. He said it. Yeah, we make predictions proudly as, peop- as human beings. Oh, they, they fall flat. An official of the White Star Line, speaking of the firm's newly built flagship, the Titanic, on the day that the champagne was broken and the ship was launched early in 1912, this ship is unsinkable. Of course, we all know how that turned out. I mean, just... In 1939, the New York Times... Uh, published a column that had to do with this new technology called television. They wrote, television has a big problem. It will never catch on because it requires that people have to glue their eyes to a screen and the average American wouldn't have time for it. Excuse me just a second. I, just, I need to check some game times. And finally, an unknown English astronomy professor in 1905 said that air travel at high speed would be impossible because passengers would suffocate. I think that's great. We don't suffocate. We do starve, though. Have you, you know, Peanuts for five hours from here to Denver? I don't get it. So, so mankind cannot prophesy or even handle the implications of what he's living in. Well, Scripture has no problem with that. As I said, and I'll just go into just a little bit more briefer detail here. Uh, the, the, the perspective on biblical prophecy has two parts to it. One is, fulfilled prophecy authenticates the God of the Bible. That's part of my story. When I saw fulfilled prophecies shown in the Old Testament, and I, I knew that in history they had been fulfilled, it authenticated that, that the Bible must have been written by God. It, when Scripture makes prophecies and then they are fulfilled in time and space, its veracity and authenticity, really, it self-tests itself. And without going into a lot of detail, I saw that. And, you know, God said that that was something he intended for people to do because that's one of the reasons he put prophecies in the Old Testament record about these nations that eventually did arise and these kings who eventually were born and these events and victories that eventually were held and all of the other things that I saw. In Isaiah 46, verse 9, God said, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. What are the former things of old? The things he prophesied which were to happen. Look at the next verse. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, 
things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. That's what God does through prophecy. That's what he did through the prophecies that were made about Jesus Christ and fulfilled in his life, death, and resurrection. It marked out that Christ was the Messiah and that God kept his, kept his promises, and this is the one whom we ought to worship. It also marks out that God has perfect character when it comes to his promises. Number 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? And so again, prophecies like the ones we'll go over today nailed my faith into greater certainty. And I hope they will do that for you today. Second thing you want to remember as we get started is fulfilled prophecy authenticates the Jesus of history. 60 prophecies made beginning a thousand years before he was born by various prophetic writers mentioned 300 times in the overall text of the Old Testament, and they were all fulfilled to the letter and the life of Christ. And there are many others that are going to be fulfilled about his second coming. And by the way, beloved, if he fulfilled every prophecy to the letter in the first arrival of Jesus, what do you think is going to be true about the prophecies about the second arrival, the return of Christ? All of those will be fulfilled in detail too. It is exciting to be involved in biblical prophecy. It is exciting to understand the times we may be entering. And it is exciting to understand that though we live in increasing chaos, our God is moving over it all with prophetic certainty to bring his plans to completion and to bring his son back to the planet. Fulfilled prophecy authenticates the Jesus of history. It shows us that he was in point in time marked out by these 60 prophecies. Romans 1, 2, 2 to 4 says, He promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son many things. This is why Jesus said after he had risen from the dead and the men around him still had questions about all that they had seen and heard, they were overwhelmed by the supernatural fulfillment of his resurrection. That Jesus comforted them, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus taught prophecy. <laughs> A lot of pastors today say that biblical prophecy is an, irre- an irrelevant topic. Uh, it, it won't help you live a, an obedient Christian life. It's a minor theme in the Bible. Well, did you know that one-third of all the holy scriptures, when they were written, were prophetic? One-third of the scripture was written to talk about things yet to come. Much of it's been fulfilled in history. All of it, listen, will be fulfilled in history. So you won't find this preacher ignoring what God spent one-third of his time inspiring. That's for another message. I'm going off topic. So let's take a look now at the prophecies of the Messiah. Let's take a look at just ten of the 60 prophecies about his life. And what I'm going to do is let you you see how it identifies Jesus born in Bethlehem as the Savior of the world. That birth event as being the birth of Messiah, undebatable if you simply want to take it as historical fact. You guys remember a number of years ago um, when, uh, well, software was being developed and smartphones were were sort of happening they came up with a new um, uh, program that you could download on your laptop or your desktop called Google Earth. Everybody remember Google Earth, yeah? 
All you have to do now is turn on Google Maps and you have it now. But back before the, the, the smartphone generation and the apps and all that stuff, Google Earth was something that you could download on your computer and, and it, it was based on satellite imagery, right? Remember that? And you could just, it, it would start with this big picture of the Earth, this picture of the satellite image of the Earth. And then you could type, type in a location and then with a click of your mouse, the, the picture would just tighten. Remember this? Click, click, and we'd go from the large picture of the earth, click, click, down to maybe North America as a continent, then click, click, and we'd go a little farther, and it'd go down to the western part of the United States where you live, and you would type in an address from when you were a kid. I did this when I lived in Florida. I typed in an old address, and, and click, 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 and I watched it, and it would quickly kind of click, click all the way down to not just the city I lived in and not just the neighborhood I lived in, but remember how crazy this was? Click down to the house that you lived in. Google Earth. I spent a lot of wasted evenings with that. <laughs> but uh, now it's been a finder course and it's on your phone. Google Maps will let you do a lot of the same thing. But I want to, in a sense, take a look at the prophecies about the birth of Jesus and talk about them as a biblical version of Google Earth. Because what they do is they take you from the overall big picture of, of, of God's son arriving on the planet and they click you all the way down to that little stable in Bethlehem. Let's watch how this happens. So let's go through 10 of them. First of all, uh, the Messiah, the Bible said and predicted, would be born of the seed of Abraham. In Genesis 22, God went to a man named Abram, whom he had chosen out of a pagan nation. He was a worshiper of the moon God. He brought him over into the region that he was going to give to him, the, the, the region of modern day Israel. And he told Abram, that he was going to have a miracle son. A miracle because Abram and Sarah had a 60-year-long fertility problem. Wanted to have children, never could. But God said, you're not only going to have an offspring, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So one guy picked anonymously out of the human uh, the human race. So we go. We, the, the Google big picture is planet earth. Out of planet Earth, God chooses one man named Abram out of an area in, 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 in the Arab, Saudi Arabian area of the world, moves him up to where the promised land was going to be, and says, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And one particular member of your offspring, offspring in Genesis 22 is singular in the Hebrew, one particular individual is going to be born into time and space, and through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In other words, I'm bringing my Savior to this sinful world, and he's going to come through you and your line and your loins, and he's going to bless the world. He, he will be a seed of your line. That was a challenge, because like I said, they had a 60-year fertility problem, and uh, they were not part of any nation. God took them out of their old heritage and they were just there on their own. So we know the story. God miraculously provided them with a, a birth son named Isaac. How interesting. This morning we celebrated the arrival of an Isaac. Here's another. From one childless couple. It was all designed to bring the birth of one future child, Yeshua. So a miracle started the whole process. An unexpected act started the whole process. And you go from Google Universal down to, to the, the, the tribe, the, the, the seed, rather, of Abraham. 
And we know that this is fulfilled in the life of Christ because in Matthew chapter 1, in the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the scripture says he was the son of David, the son of Abraham. So that started the physical lineage, the human lineage, rather, of Jesus Christ. So God basically took the whole world and he said, I'm going to bring you out of one specific nation, my son, and that nation is going to be Israel. God created that nation when he said to Abram, you're going to be a source of blessing to the world. By the way, Israel is the only nation ever formed by God. Think about that. Every other nation formed itself, came out of a cause or a revolution. Only one nation was ever verbally brought into existence by God. Second, the, pro- the prophecies went further and said, not only would the Messiah, when he comes, be a seed of, of the seed of Abraham, but he would be a son of Isaac. Now, why is this important? It narrows it down a little bit more. Now, we know that uh, Sarah and Abraham did have two sons, didn't they? Isaac was the eventual miracle son born to Sarah who had been, who had been childless. But waiting for that son was too much for them, and so they came up with a scheme of their own for uh, to, to form a, a, a son named Ishmael, uh, who was essentially illegitimate in, in that sense. Not born of Sarah. But even though he was older and Abraham wanted him to be the fulfiller or the receiver of the promise, God said, that's not what I told you to do. I told you to have faith. I told you I was going to do this. And so Ishmael did not receive the right of the family, and, and that line did not go through him. God said in, in Genesis 21, 12, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So what happened there? God, Abraham had two sons. God separated one half of the descendants of Abraham from the other. So you go from one, uh, one nation, which is Israel, down to basically one specific line. So God is kind of tightening the picture, isn't he? Another uh, third prophecy is that Jesus would be the son of Jacob. Now we know, by the way, in Luke 3.34, in the genealogy of Jesus, it confirms he's not only a son of Abraham, and a son of, but, but also a son of Isaac. There was also a third prophecy that he would descend from the line and, and be a son of Jacob, who came after Isaac. Isaac had two sons. Remember that? He, there was Jacob and there was Esau. Esau was the older of the two, by just a few seconds. They were twins, but he was the older of the two. Remember the story? So technically, according to the laws of the tribal lands at that time, he should have received the inheritance, and he should have been the one through the, who, who the line would be named through. But God said, oh no, I do things my way. Don't do things your way. I'm going to send my son's line through Jacob. And so Jacob was chosen in Numbers 24, 17, God predicted a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. The coming Messiah would be from Jacob. And of course, in Luke chapter 3, guess who was in the line of Jacob? The Lord Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, son of Isaac, and son of Jacob. So you go from the entire planet down to one particular nation, the future nation of Israel, and one specific line in that nation, and the Google picture tightens a little bit more. A fourth prophecy. He would also be descendant from the tribe of Judah. What's this all about? Well, Jacob went on to have sons. And Jacob had how many sons? Twelve. 
out of these 12 sons came the 12 tribes of Israel. So the math gets a little bit more challenging for God. What a stupid thing to say. <laughs> no, it didn't get more challenging for God. God just said in Genesis 49:10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. Better translation of that might be the Hebrew word Shiloh, which is, means the one with the right to rule. It's a messianic prophecy. It says that the one who's going to be born to the planet is going to take away human sin, who's going to die and rise again, who's going to come back and rule the nations. He's going to come from a particular one of the 12 tribes, the tribe of Judah. And certainly we see in Luke chapter 3 that Jesus Christ descended not from any of the other 11 tribes, but from the tribe of Judah, Luke 3.33. So now we go from the universe of, of planet Earth to one specific nation, Israel, down through one specific line, the line of Isaac and Jacob, down to one specific tribe, the tribe of Judah. Click, 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 click. So history predicted step by step all the things that Jesus would have to fulfill to be the Messiah, and they're starting to fall into line. One nation, one line, one tribe. Now we go to one family. Here's the fifth prophecy. The Messiah, when he arrived, would also have to be of the family of Jesse. So in the tribe of Judah, there were thousands of families, and God decided to choose one of the, the least regarded, hardest to find little families in the tribe of of Judah, and that was the family of Jesse, because he said in Isaiah 11:1, 1, "There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit." Poetic language to talk again about this Messiah who was going to come and bear the fruit of salvation. And sure enough, that's what God did, because in Luke, Luke 3, chapter 3, verse 32, it says that Jesus was also a son of Jesse. So all of this is just tightening. Out of thousands of families, just one was chosen. So now you go from one nation to one line to one tribe to one specific family. It all just kind of titrates itself down to one coming person in history. Here's the sixth one. He would not only be from one particular nation and one particular line and one particular tribe, from one particular family, the family of Jesse, but he would be coming through one person in that family, one house, and that's the house of David. Jeremiah 23, 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, that's the Messiah to come, a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king. I'll raise him up at his birth, and when he comes back, he'll also reign over the world as king. Who will he be? He will be from David. He will be of the house of David, a righteous branch. So Messiah, when he comes, will have to be from one son in the house of Jesse. How many sons did Jesse have? Any of you guys remember? Seven is the common answer, but he actually had eight. Remember the story? God goes to a prophet named Samuel. He says, I'm building my messianic line. I'm building the physical lineage through whom my son is going to come. Messiah is going to come through the house of Jesse. Now, I want you to go there, and I want you to pick out one of their sons as I give you direction who will be the one who will, whose line will give birth to Messiah. Samuel goes, goes to Jesse's house, tells him the story. Jesse gets all excited and calls in his sons because he's excited to have one of his sons named to be the one that will be the progenitor of the Messiah. 
And Samuel sits there in the living room as Jesse brings in his sons, one after the other. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And he goes through all of them and they, they, he gives, they give him their names and tell him their story and Samuel looks them over. In fact, there's one in the, in the lineup that, that looks particularly kingly, built, impressive, kind of had a glint in his eye, a little ambition in his step. And Samuel whispers to the Lord and says, well, surely it's this one, Lord. I'll pick him. Let's get this going. God said, that's not the one I've chosen. Ask him if he has any others. And so Samuel asked Jesse, and Jesse says, well, yeah, there is one other, but you really don't want to look at him. He's kind of the run of the litter, and we don't pay much attention to him. In fact, he's out poking sheep with a stick right now on a hillside. And you know, No, all your sons. So David comes in, and David steps into that house, and God speaks to Samuel. And he says, I don't look on the outward appearance. I look on the heart. This one is going to have a heart after me. Choose him. So God in that moment of time fulfills history that's still centuries away. One nation, one line, one tribe, one family, and now down to one specific house, the house of David. See how God does what he does completely unexpectedly. And without any human advice... (laughs) And he gets it done. The seventh prophecy about the Messiah would be that he would also be born in Bethlehem. Now we get to, well, the geographic power of God. Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, prophesied, from ancient days. He also came forth from ancient days, which means he was God. Don't miss all the power in this statement. My son, the eternal God, is going to come unto planet earth. He's going to take on also the form of a man and the nature of a man without sin. And he's going to be born in a little town called Bethlehem. Right? Well, not exactly. Don't miss it. Bethlehem Ephrathah. Why so specific? Did you know that there are two Bethlehems in Israel? Did you know that there were two Bethlehems back when Jesus was born in Israel? There was Bethlehem up in the northern part of the country in the Galilee region. That Bethlehem was quite prosperous. It was a bustling town and uh, a lot of people moved there and lived there. It was a great place to be from. Bethlehem Ephrathah was in the far south in the region where the tribe of Judah had existed. Bethlehem Ephrathah in Judea. And that was a dusty, crummy little town. (laughs) There was a place that people didn't even want to drive by. God chose Bethlehem, Ephrathah. You know, there's lots of different places in the world that uh, go by the same names. You probably know this. Um, Back when I was researching this years ago um, and looking at this prophecy, I decided to find out how many cities are there in the world that God had to pick from. You know, the big picture, Google Earth, you know. 
At that time, I, this was a number of years ago, there was 2,700,000 cities in the world. And I was living in Sacramento at the time, so I thought, well, let's, let, let me take a look at Sacramento. And so I Googled to see, is there any other city named Sacramento in the United States? Oh, yeah, there's the Sacramento, California, where I was living at the time, zip code 95831. And there's also a place called Sacramento, Kentucky, <laughs> zip code 42372. There's a little difference between those two. Sacramento, California at the time, the population was about 500,000. Sacramento, Kentucky, population 500. <laughs> everybody knew everybody. Average income, this is years ago, it's higher now, in Sacramento was 47,000. Average income per person in Sacramento, Kentucky, 19,000. Average house value, again, a lot of years ago in Sacramento, 250,000. A lot more than that now. Average housing value in Kentucky, uh, Sacramento, Kentucky, 60,000. Would it have made a difference where you were and what your life experience was like? Are they two distinct places? Oh, yeah, that's why they have two different zip codes. Well, God zip-coded which Bethlehem he wanted his son from, and he put a zip code on it. Oh, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Oh, Bethlehem 99206, basically. You think about that. Centuries before Messiah arrives, he puts it into the ear of an Old Testament prophet named, prophet named Micah to state that in Bethlehem Ephrathah, the Messiah would come. You don't think God's in control of every inch of human geography, human history? I just found that fascinating. I mean, Google, the image now gets down to a little town in the south of Israel. And we know that Matthew 2, 1 says this was fulfilled because Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. The text says, by the way, did you know that when a firstborn son was, was brought into the world in ancient Israel at the time of Jesus, the parents were required within a few weeks of that child's birth to go to the uh, temple and to record the genealogy of their son and to have it entered into the temple record so that it would be recorded that that person was truly a son of the nation of Israel and was part of the line of, of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you would see that when, when he got to the 12 tribes, which tribe you were a member of. And so in Jesus' case, Joseph and Mary would have had to have gone to the temple at some point, and they would have had to testify it under oath to the scribe there as he wrote out the genealogy of Jesus, that Jesus Christ himself was a son of the nation of Israel. He was of the seed of Abraham, a son of Isaac, a son of Jacob, of the tribe of Judah, of the family of Jesse, of the house of David, born in Bethlehem. And all of that would be recorded. It was recorded in the archives of the temple. This is why it was such a disaster for Israel when the temple was destroyed 40 years after Christ lived by the emperor uh, and the armies of Titus, the Roman, Roman armies came in and destroyed the temple and burned everything to the ground, took every stone off top of another, which Jesus had prophesied and the Old Testament had prophesied. One of the greatest losses to Israel was the loss of all those records. Because today, modern, modern Jewish people, as they go back to Israel, want to know what tribe they're from. 
and they really can't put that together. But back when Jesus was alive, it was all in print down at City Hall. What I'm pointing out is all the Pharisees and the scribes knew all these prophecies about Messiah. None of what I've told you in the last few minutes would have been debated by the Pharisees. They would say, oh yes, the Messiah when he comes will be a seed of Abraham, a son of Isaac, a son of Jacob, of the tribe of Judah, of the family of Jesse, click, 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 of the house of David, and he will be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Well, Jesus was. And it was in print in the temple downtown. Now, the Pharisees wanted to do everything they could to destroy who Jesus Christ was and want to stop his preaching ministry, didn't they? They were plotting to murder him, spreading all kinds of false rumors about him. But when you think about it, the easiest way for the Pharisees to have destroyed the preaching ministry of Christ and ended his whole life in ministry was simply to have gone down to City Hall and gone down to the temple, sent a couple Pharisees down there, and show that Jesus Christ was none of these things. So I imagine they must have sent a couple of Pharisees down there, maybe on a Wednesday when the lines were shorter, and, and they got in line in the record section and said, we need to research the genealogy of uh, Yeshua of Nazareth, son of Joseph and Mary. And they were taken back and you know, the big books are opened or the big scrolls are opened and the guy guided him through the deal. Okay, here's where they registered him. And this, they would have been able to take their bony fingers and, and go all the way back from born in Bethlehem of Ephratha to Joseph and to Mary and the house of David. He is of the family of Jesse. He is of the tribe of Judah. He is, of course, a son of Jacob and Isaac and of the seed of Abraham, born in Bethlehem. Do you think? Nah. But they had to go back to the Pharisees' leaders and say, listen, we, we went to the temple to dis- discredit him because surely he couldn't match all of the things that the Old Testament prophecies say the Messiah has to do to be considered they said, but we can't use that against him because it turns out he did match everything. Do you see what I'm saying? They could have stopped his ministry in, in its tracks if they could have proven he had the wrong genealogy and all these prophecies didn't apply. They had a problem. It did apply. This is why you never hear them bringing it up. It's a little sidebar. Maybe I, I get interested in these little factoids. But they, God's in control of everything. Born in Bethlehem of Pratha, recorded at City Hall. It's right there. There's a few more, though. So right now, the the Google Earth Earth of Prophecy goes from the the, the world at large to one specific nation of Israel and one one line through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob down to one tribe, uh, the the tribe of of, uh, Judah, and then through one family, the family of Jesse, and then down through one specific house, the house of David, through whom Jesus was born at one specific town, Bethlehem. Here's the eighth prophecy. He would also be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7, 14, read in our hearing today. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, I imagine in Bethlehem of Ephrathah, there were a few children born that year. There might even have been one or two born the same day Jesus was born. But there was only one little stable on the wrong side of that wrong town that ever held the birth of 
a baby to a virgin. So now your, your prophetic Google Earth clicks all the way down to a little stable in the backside of town. And we know that Matthew 1.18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Why is the virgin birth important? Two things. One is it means sin was not inherited through Joseph. It means that Jesus Christ was born in a physically sinless body. There was no sin in him. But also... It's the only way God could have arrived on the planet because he's eternal. An eternal God could never have a beginning, could he? He could never be born into time. He walked into time. An eternal God could never have a beginning. He could only have an arrival. No other baby was ever born like that. Well, two more and I close. Two more prophecies about this child. Soon after his birth, he would be presented with gifts. Psalm 72.10. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. Now, interesting. Who are those people? Well, if you take a look at Old Testament research, the inhabitants of Seba and Sheba were known as the Sabaeans, and they lived in Arabia. And Arabia is called the land of the east in Genesis 25.6. And the Arabians are called men of the east in Judges 6.3. And the, the gifts that they brought, particularly frankincense and myrrh, came from that region of the world. Who am I talking about? The three wise men, the three kings. We know that Matthew 2.1 says that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, see how it's marked out, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and going into the house. Click, 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 click. Of course, this is about a, a year after Jesus had been born, but it was, it was near the time. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him, opening their treasures. They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So God specifically identifies his son as the only child visited that year by an entourage of Arabian kings. That kind of sets him apart, don't you think? <laughs> it set him apart to Herod the king, who was so terrified of this that he fulfilled the last prophecy. What was the last prophecy? That this Messiah, this one who came into the nation of Israel through the line of Isaac and Jacob, through the tribe of Judah, into the family of Jesse, through the, the line in the house of David, born into a specific town named Bethlehem Ephrathah, born in a supernatural way through a virgin, presented with gifts soon after his birth by wise kings and powerful men of the east, would also lastly be pursued unto death. He would be the only baby born in Bethlehem of Ephrathah that would cause a king to be so enraged that all the children in that region would be killed. Jeremiah 31, 15, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah. What was Ramah? It was a small town that was a short walk from Bethlehem, Ephrata. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no, no more. In other words, their lives have been taken. That was a prophecy of what would happen at the physical birth of Messiah. Matthew 2.16, then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that 
region, including Rama, who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Pursued unto death, that's recorded in history. Wow. Well, I must rush to close. Do you see what God does with prophecy, specifically when it comes to his son? He's a zip-coded savior. And don't think, and I'm not being profane there. I'm, I'm being reverential. I know that Jesus Christ came into history as the savior of the world, the son of God, the Messiah of Israel, because God identified him prophetically from the big picture down to the smallest picture. No other human being in history has been marked out that way or identified that way, ever. I looked at things like that and I became convinced that this Jesus they were telling me about was no religious fiction. Now, two common challenges to all of this from skeptics. <laughs> Even I wasn't skeptical enough to do this. One is that Jesus arranged all this. <laughs> we can just chuckle through that and go on. Yeah. How do you arrange the nation you were born in, the line you were born in, the tribe you were born in, the, the, the uh, family you were born in, the history you were born in, the place you were born in? Hmm. How do you work that out? Others just say, well, this is simply coincidence. You know, there are different figures in history that have fulfilled some of these biblical prophecies different kings in time, one or two. Well, that's laughable. It's been disproved for years by Christians as they answer the critics. One of the most famous um, was a guy named Peter Stoner. You've probably heard this story. He wrote a book called Science Speaks in which he proved the arrival of Jesus to be prophetically certain. And then he took on this challenge of skeptics that said, well, you know, there are a lot of people in history that could fulfill some of these prophecies. It's it, this was all a coincidence with Christ. And Stoner said, well, there were 60 prophecies about his entire life, death, and burial resurrection. Let's just take eight that, that out of his life from any portion of it. I'll challenge you. What's the statistical probability that one person could by chance, by coincidence, fulfill eight of these prophecies? He worked it out being a mathematician expert in mathematical probability, he added up all the probabilities that these eight prophecies could come to pass in one person's life by accident and concluded to be one chance in 10 to the 17th powers that such an accident could happen. I looked up what one in 10, 17 zeros means in real financial language. You know, a million dollars is one, you know, 10 with six zeros after it. Some of us now in Spokane live in homes that are almost a million dollars. Isn't that crazy? A billion dollars is 10 with nine zeros after it. That's what the government used to say was a lot of money. A trillion dollars is 10 to the 12th power. That's what the government now says. Hey, really, that's not that much money. A quadrillion is 10 to the 15th. I couldn't find 10 to the 17th, but I, I did find out that a quintillion is 10 to the 18th power. So let's just leave it there. One chance out of a quintillion that this would ever happen. And yet Jesus Christ's life fulfilled 60 prophecies mentioned over a thousand years of time. Anyway, I leave it there. I think you can accept the obvious, can't you? Here's the last piece, the panorama of all this as it goes to the cross. With this, I close. 
The prophecies about Jesus didn't just stop in the early year of his life. They went on. The rest of the 60 prophecies were fulfilled, and many of them were fulfilled in one day. Did you know this? 24 of the remaining prophecies about the life of Jesus were fulfilled in the last 24 hours of his life. They all surrounded his betrayal, his torment, his crucifixion, his death. 24 hours. Prophecies like that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, that that silver would be thrown down on the floor of the temple, that that silver would be used to purchase a place called a potter's field, that he would be crucified with two thieves, that his garments would not only be, di- would be, would be divided among others, but they would be gambled for at the foot of his cross. The very words of the people that would mock him were prophesied in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, centuries before his crucifixion. The words Jesus uttered on the cross prophesied as well, and that his side would be pierced, and yet not a bone of him broken, and on and on it could go. Why? Because Isaiah 53 prophesied that he would pour out his soul to death and be numbered with the transgressors. Why? To bear the sin of many. That's where you come into Bible prophecy, you and I. All of those prophecies were made about his arrival so that no man could debate that he was the Messiah. And all of these prophecies were fulfilled in his death so that no man could debate that he was your Savior. The only person left to debate that is you. So maybe you're skeptical on a Christmas week like I was. You're the only answer to your own skepticism. I've given you proofs. I've given you my story. And God signed all of this evidence through the blood of his son. One author said this, think of it. His personal scarlet red signature is on our salvation. The signature of the centuries written in prophecy. What will you do with all that you know of Jesus? Jesus. 